0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org.
1: All right, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 14, verse 1 through 20, which I entitled Marks of the Creator Hidden in the Creation. This comes from the passage that we're going to be looking at where Paul speaks to the people of Lystra and Derbe. Let's begin in verse 1 and 2. We read that the same thing happened in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. As you can recall from last week, Paul ventured out on his second missionary journey, and his next stop was here in Iconium. We're told that some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. So although... Some of the Jews and Gentiles were united in faith, others were united in opposition against Paul and Barnabas, and were told that they started to put together a smear campaign in order to drive Paul and Barnabas out of this city. But the apostles stayed there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord, and the Lord proved their message was true by giving them powers to do miraculous signs and wonders you'll often see this connection in the book of Acts where it's either God calls on the disciples to proclaim the message of Christ and then backs it up with a miraculous sign or wonder or that the apostles come into a city perform a miraculous sign and wonder and then that really sets the stage for them to be able to share the message of Christ to these people. So, One of the things that we should notice here is that these miraculous signs and wonders that God gives to people often validates His message. You know, you see in some churches today, there's a fascination with signs and wonders. And they'll have entire meetings where they're calling on God to try to to heal people or to express these signs and wonders. And really, it's all about People getting excited about God to sort of whip up the zeal and excitement of believers. But when we read in the book of Acts that these miraculous signs and wonders were happening, they were often in connection with God trying to demonstrate the truthfulness of his word. But the people of the town were divided in their opinion about him. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Then a mob of Gentiles and Jews, along with their leaders, decided to attack and stone them. So these Jewish people who were opposed to Paul apparently managed to get the authorities and they tried to start this riot and kill Paul and Barnabas. When the apostles learned about it, they fled to the region of Lycaonia, to the towns of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding area. And there they preached the good news. So as soon as they heard that this plot was afoot, they just decided they escaped to this surrounding town there in Lystra and Derby, where they started to preach the good news again. While they were there in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening to Paul as he preached, and looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. It's not clear how Paul deduced this. Or how he inferred that this man had faith. But maybe there was a leading of the Holy Spirit that told him that this man had faith. And so Paul called to him in a loud voice. He said, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. And they decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and Paul was Hermes. Since he was the chief speaker, I'm sure Paul was probably like, dude, what the hell? Why, am I, why do I have to be Hermes? Why can't I be Zeus? <laughs> now, the temple of Zeus was located just outside of town, so the priests of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. So they were so awestruck by what they saw Paul and Barnabas do that they they decided that these guys are gods. Now, this may not make much sense to us. If we saw a miraculous sign or wonder today, I don't think we would have a compulsion to try to worship that person as a god. But you have to understand a little bit about the history in this city. Um, In the nearby city of Phrygia, Fifty years earlier, the Roman poet Ovid wrote Metamorphosis. And it included a story about Zeus and Hermes disguising themselves in human form and coming to the city of Phrygia and going house to house looking for somebody who would take them in. And apparently a thousand people rejected him until finally one woman who was poor decided to let him in. And at that point... They threw off their disguise and judged the people, the thousands, who rejected them with a flood. And so these people in nearby Lystra probably were familiar with this story and were afraid that maybe this was Zeus and Hermes again coming in and trying to deceive the people. And so they were probably afraid that uh, they would meet the same fate as the Phrygians. Uh, if they didn't offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they actually tore their clothing in dismay and ran out among the people. Which, you know, tearing your clothing in the ancient Near Eastern way was a way of mourning or grieving. They were upset that these people were trying to worship them. Friends, he says, why are you doing this? We're merely human beings just like you. We've come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. And he says he never let them, left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. So he gets up in front of these people, and he starts preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. But I think it's interesting when you look at Paul's approach, it varies from city to city. Whenever he's talking, for instance, to Jewish people, he starts by proving from the scriptures that Jesus in fact was the chosen one of God. Whereas whenever he talks to people who are non-Jewish or Gentile, he would always start by pointing to the creation that it contained the mark of God and His and His hand there, His handiwork. We see in the Old Testament that David declares that God's handiwork can be seen in the creation. In Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word, and their voice is never heard. So he says that when we look out into the sky, the night sky, And you stand in awe of what you see. That there are distant galaxies and universes or uh, uh, stars out there that when we look at that, it displays God's handiwork. That we sense internally that God created all that we see. He goes on, he says, Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. So this revelation of God's creation. It's not just something that was given to individuals, but it's available to all people as they look out into nature. That there's something about nature that they can see God's invisible qualities. And he says, God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding night. I'll let you unpack that. So... You know, I think on an intuitive level, when we go out into nature, you know, for example, if you travel far up north into Canada and you're looking out into the night sky and you see ribbons of light unfolding from the aurora borealis, there's a sense within us that we are seeing God's handiwork. Or for example, if you're standing on a pristine beach in Southern California and you watch the sunset over the ocean, that incredible display of beauty points us back to our creator. You know, even if you drive a couple hours out from Columbus into an area that isn't heavily populated, you know, you can get a pretty good view of the stars. And it's amazing to think, that some of the light that you're seeing from distant stars, that some of those, um, you know, the light that you see could be a million years old from stars that have burnt out long ago. And I think all of that points us to something that, that God has embedded in his creation, namely evidence for his existence. You know, Paul in Romans 119 and 20 Says that people know that God exists and that they are without excuse because God has demonstrated through the creation his invisible qualities. And yet he points out that human beings, even though they know God exists, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That there is an active resistance to acknowledging God's reality. It's kind of like if you ever play that game as you, you know, if you're swimming, where you try to swim the volleyball down to the bottom of the pool. I mean, it takes all of your effort to try to get it down there. But as soon as you even let go, I mean, this thing just rockets back up from the water, right? In the same way, we come up with elaborate theories to evade the existence of God. Or we actively suppress it by just pretending that he doesn't exist and and occupying ourselves with whatever we're doing. And yet, in those quiet moments, there's a sense that God exists. And that we can't uh, evade that. Um, But I think even on a scientific level, you know, when we look at science today, contrary to what you might hear, Science doesn't contradict the idea of God or existence of God. In many ways, it actually bolsters the existence of God. It it lends evidence to it. I wanted to go through what I think is a really awesome area of study that, for me, when I started looking into this stuff, really bolstered my faith. It's just really one of many arguments that you find that describe and and give credence to the existence of God. This one's called the fine-tuned universe. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, most scientists believed that the universe had no beginning. But then in 1929, Edwin Hubble observed something that alarmed most cosmologists and physicists and really turned the scientific community on its head, where he... Observed the red shift of stars. And from this, he inferred that the universe was actually expanding outward. And from this, they, they just you know, scientists have gathered that the universe probably is about 14 billion years old. And that if you trace the universe's origin back fourteen billion years, there was a single point that contain all the mass, all of the energy in the universe, and at some point, it exploded. And it resulted in the universe that we live in today. And, of course, this had some implications that made scientists feel very uncomfortable. John Lennox captures this in um, one of his books. He says, Another well known scientist who found the idea of a beginning repugnant is Sir John Maddox, a former editor of Nature. He pronounced the idea of a beginning thoroughly unacceptable because it implied an ultimate origin of our world and gave creationists ample justification for their beliefs. It's rather ironic that in the 16th century, some people resisted advances in science. Because they see, it seemed to threaten belief in God. Whereas in the 20th century, scientific ideas of the beginning have been resisted because they threatened to increase the plausibility of belief in God. And so you can imagine the idea that our universe has an origin would be something that most agnostic and certainly atheistic scientists would be resistant to. One thing that scientists have discovered are that there are a number, dozens of physical constants in the universe that seem to be finely tuned, to use their terminology, and that if these constants were off by even a small fraction, that life as we know it would cease to exist. In fact, many stars would not even uh, have formed, thus making life impossible. Here's a, a list of the 34 constants uh, that most scientists agree upon. There, there are more, and those are up for debate. But take, for example, the strong nuclear force. Right? This is the force that keeps uh, atoms together. It, uh, if it was larger, even by a small fraction, no hydrogen would form. And atomic nuclei from most life-essential elements would be unstable. Thus, there would be no life chemistry. If smaller, no elements heavier than hydrogen would form, again, you'd have no life chemistry. So, uh, it's pretty amazing to see that you have these 34 constants and each and every one of them seem to be finely tuned in order to make life possible. Stephen Hawking, the famous astrophysicist, says, The laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers, like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. For example, if the electric charge of the electron had been only slightly different, stars either would have been unable to burn hydrogen and helium or else they would not have exploded. It seems clear that there are relatively few ranges of values for the numbers that would allow the development of any form of intelligent life. Most sets of values would give rise to universes that that although they might be very beautiful would contain no one able to wonder at their beauty. And as far as we know, Stephen Hawking does not hold Christian beliefs, does not believe in the Bible, and he's probably agnostic. At best. Paul Davies, another physicist, cosmologist, who, again, this guy is not a believer, says it's virtually impossible that the universe came to have these correct parameters for life by chance. Because so many of these numbers must all lie in such a small range of values. If the initial explosion of the Big Bang had differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th, the universe would have either quickly collapsed back on itself or expanded too rapidly for stars to form. In either case, life would be impossible. An accuracy of one part in 10 to the 60 can be compared to firing a bullet from one for, at a one-inch target on the other side of the observable universe 20 billion light-years away and hitting that target. I can't even imagine that, but I mean, that seems crazy, right? Here's Richard Dawkins, definitely not a believer, dubbed the high priest of atheism, says, physicists have calculated that if the laws and constants of physics had been even slightly different, the universe would have developed in such a way that life would have been impossible. Different physicists put it different ways, but the conclusion is always the same. It is indeed perfectly plausible that there is only one way for a universe to be, But why did that one way have to be such a setup for our eventual evolution? Good question. Of course, he doesn't believe in a creator. But he just sits and stands in wonder of uh, the creation and how all of this came about. Now, I wanted to show a video that uh, kind of depicts this.
0: From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered, by even a hair's breadth. No physical interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments. The universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these and many other numbers have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely.
1: Good summary of what we were talking about here. You know, maybe to put some some things into perspective, let's let's consider some odds of things happening. You know, getting a royal flush in poker on the first five cards dealt is one or six hundred forty nine thousand seven hundred forty to one. Not really good odds. Of becoming president, be 10 million to one. Of a meteor landing on your house, be 182 trillion, 138 billion, 880 million to one. Chance of an American home having at least one container of ice cream in their freezer, nine in 10. (laughs) Of striking it rich on the antique roadshow, about (laughs) 60,001. For those of you who are into antiquing, maybe you'll make it rich one day. Of dying from your pajamas catching on fire. 30 million to one. Of the Browns ever winning the Super Bowl. Who could even calculate something like that? The sheer improbability. Now one scientist tried to come up with a calculation that takes into account all of those 34 constants, and he came up with the formation of the universe happening would be 1 in 10 billion to the 124th. To give you sort of an idea of what that would look like, that's what it would look like right there. That's 1,240 zeros. Um, So... Really what we're talking about here is something that's so unlikely, they've actually developed a term to describe it, infinitesimal, nearly impossible. Robert Drastro says, the details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. We scientists didn't expect to find evidence for an abrupt beginning because We have had until fairly recently such an extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. For the scientist who has lived in his faith and the power of reason, the story ends sort of like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he finally pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Now, of course, the naturalists, uh, critics of the Bible, critics of the idea of a God's existence, would say at this point that there are other explanations for this. One popular theory would be the multiverse. This is based on mathematical string theory, where um, theoretical physicists speculate that there are multiple parallel universes. Some speculate that there may be trillions, if not almost an infinite number of parallel universes that exist. And yet, these universes are, you know, really contained in a way that we cannot observe them or interact with them. And of course, they see problems with this, that, you know, these so-called multiple universes escape scientific observation, Brian Greene, the leading expert of multiverse, um, says, it will be extremely hard, if not impossible, for us to ever know if the multiverse picture is true. Even if there are other universes, we can imagine that we will never come into contact with any of them. You know, aside from this, I think it's interesting that naturalistic scientists would try to come up with a theory to explain something When really, it's just chance that brought the universe together, according to their theory, their beliefs. Uh, John Lennox points out that if we're willing to accept multiverse, then we should be willing to accept really anything. He says, I'm tempted to add that the belief in God seems an infinitely more rational option if the alternative is to believe that there are other universes that possibly can exist and do exist including one in which Richard Dawkins is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Christopher Hitchens is the Pope, and Billy Graham has just been voted Atheist of the Year. Another would be, you know, this is kind of like the universe was sort of, uh, it's kind of like rolling a million-sided die and calling out five before it stops, and then it lands on five. I mean, that seems highly unlikely, very improbable, but certainly you wouldn't say that it, it's impossible, right? Well, I'm not sure that that would be an accurate way of describing this. You know, one way to respond to this would be, it's like actually having a 10 billion sided die and rolling it and hitting five, 124 times in a row. That would be more like what we're describing here with with Uh, fine-tuning, highly improbable, nearly unlikely. You know, what are we to conclude from this? I guess to put it simply, maybe we can think about this as sort of an an analogy. You know, imagine if a judge sentenced you to a firing squad because you committed a heinous crime, and so they bring out a hundred trained expert marksmen, and as the executioner uh, tells them to ready themselves. They cock their guns, and then he shouts, Fire! And you hear, you know, the guns go off. And when you open up your eyes, you check to see in amazement that you have no bullet holes in your body, that you're completely intact. Now, what are you supposed to conclude in a situation like that? I mean, after all, even an expert marksman will occasionally miss. But what is the likelihood that a hundred trained expert marksmen happen to miss? Even though they're 10 10 paces away from you. Wouldn't a better explanation be that they intentionally missed you? And that's essentially what this argument tries to uh, put forward. It's not just accident. It's not just... You know, chance that brought about what we see here today, life as we know it. But that there was an individual, a being that actually fine tuned the universe such that life could exist. You know, David says that they speak without uh, a sound or a word. You know, when we look out into nature, there are certain weaknesses to observing the revelation that God gives to us through nature. You know, we can only infer so much from nature. Again, to use another analogy, for some of us, you know, we're we're sitting here and we're humanities majors. And a lot of this stuff was just flying over our head. (laughs) I got something for you, okay? I was a humanities major too. How many of you guys are familiar with this artist, Chuck Close? This guy's really interesting. Um, You know, when you examine Chuck Close's uh, work, most of them are, you know, huge canvases. And the subject matter of most of his paintings are portraits. And he used a photorealistic style, as you can see there, in this blown-up picture of one of his pieces. But at some point during uh, his work, there was a sudden change. And he went more to a stylized version of these portraits. So, you know, when you look at Chuck Close's work, there's a few things that you could probably infer from it. You might ask yourself, well, why portraits? You know, it's not clear. We know that he paints portraits. We know that something changed. But we really can't tell why. We could, we could speculate endlessly about it. We could say, well, maybe because it captures human emotion. He wanted to convey that to his audiences. Maybe because rich people commissioned him to paint these portraits of them. That's possible. We don't know. Again, unless we contact Chuck Close, talk to him, or hear from him, then we're just really stuck speculating. Maybe because he's got mommy issues. And, uh, you know, painting portraits helps him get connected to human emotion a little bit more. I don't know. You know, why did he suddenly shift in his style? Did the fra- Was it the fragmentation of man due to a shattered humanist worldview? I don't know. Watergate? Watergate? Or maybe hits of acid in Pink Floyd's dark side of the moon forever altered him. Again, there's no way to really know. Something changed. Something altered him, right? Again, if we look at how this relates to God, you know, nature tells us certain things about this being that created the universe. Namely, that this being possesses a vast intelligence, also, a nearly unlimited power. You know, certainly more power than that, was, that which was contained in the Big Bang. We can infer that. Also, there must have been an active will because, you know, this single point that lay dormant somehow was unleashed and it exploded. And so something must have activated this Big Bang to, to set it into motion, so to speak. But again, aside from that, we really cannot say with any certainty, who this is or what it or she or he is doing unless we come into contact with it. You know, nature can't tell us um, the Creator's will. It can't tell us if the Creator exhibits some sort of benevolence. For all we know, this Creator is an angry being. And you might actually infer that if you look out into the world and see all of the the evil, all of the destruction, all of the hate that we see in our world. You might conclude that. Also, nature can't tell us how to come into contact or how to have a relationship with this being that created the universe that we, we, we live in. Well, Paul tells us that there's another side to this. He says, we've come to bring the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God. So on the one hand, when we, when we look out into nature, we stand in amazement of what we see, that it contains the marks of the creator. You know, that describes what you might call general revelation, which encases uh, certain characteristics of God very limited. This you might call special revelation, where Paul is actually telling us and the people over in Lystra about who God is, because God has actually gone as far as to reveal himself through his written word, the Bible, and specifically that he comes to bring good news. You know, again, if we go to our Chuck Close analogy. You know, you ask yourself, well, why portraits? Well, Chuck Close actually explains why. He's got this rare condition called face blindness, where he will look at someone's face, but, but forget it. And so, apparently, this fascination with portraits has something to do with this condition that he has. He says, "'I was not conscious of making a decision to paint portraits "'because I have difficulty recognizing faces.'" That occurred to me 20 years after the fact when I looked at why I was still painting portraits. I began to realize that it has sustained me for so long because I have difficulty recognizing faces. What about this dramatic change in style? Again, Close explains. He tells us why. In 1988, uh, as he was speaking at a conference, he collapsed and fell into a seizure and from that point on he actually was paralyzed and so as a result uh, he need to he needed to compensate for his disability and uh, he now paints with an assistant who helps him by creating grids and he slowly paints these portraits using these grids and so This really, I think, captures kind of the the two ways that God communicates to us. On the one hand, he communicates through what has been created, but he also has gone as far as to communicate who he is through his written word. What does the Bible tell us about God? First of all, it tells us that he's actively working in the world, that he isn't like a deistic God who sort of wound up the universe and walked away as most people imagine him. But instead, he's involved in our lives. That he continually pursues each and every one of us as individuals. That he's also compassionate and loving. The Bible teaches that the reason why there's so much evil and destruction and hatred in the world has to do with the fact that human beings have rebelled against God. And that the world that we live in has been shattered. That it's nothing like the picture God imagined. And so, God, in his love, seeks to try to put back the world that we live in, that we've destroyed. And he seeks to try to reunite himself with us. That he's made a relationship with him possible through Jesus. And that's what Paul describes or is referring to when he says the good news. You know, some of you have heard this term, the gospel. That just really means the good news. The Bible teaches that God has good news for you. That you don't have to suffer eternal separation from him because of the sin that you've committed. But that God loves you. He's compassionate. And that he sent his son Jesus to come and die for you so that you can have a relationship with him. So that you can have an encounter with him. Well, we're told that even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain these people from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium, so the place where they escaped from, apparently they followed him down to to Lystra and actually won the crowds over to their side. So here these people, on the one hand, were ready to worship Paul and Barnabas, and now they have stones in their hand ready to drag them out and kill them. And so we're told that they stoned Paul and dragged him out into the, to the, out of the town thinking that he was dead. And as the believers gathered around him, certain that, you know, Paul was just laying there motionless. And the disciples were standing around him wondering what had happened. That he got up and then walked back into town. Imagine the scene. You know, they're, they're probably sitting there choking back tears as they think that Paul is dead because he's lying there motionless. And then he just reanimates like the Terminator, like zzz, you know, and just walks back into the city. And then we're told the next day he left for Derby. So there you have the story of Paul and Barnabas at Lystra and Derby. All right, let's draw a few points of summary here. I think the first thing that we can gather from this passage would be that God leaves plenty of evidence to reveal his existence. You know, we talked last week about how God provides tons of evidence in the Bible in the form of predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. But God goes even further in providing evidence through nature. And again, I want to throw out a plug for that book that I recommended last week, Discovering God. It outlines some of this evidence that I'm talking about in greater detail. And so if you're here tonight and you're a guest, we want to offer that book to you as a gift for free, um, as well as a complimentary drink. And I hope that you read it and are able to investigate Christianity further. But, you know, it's important, I think, that you leave here tonight, if you're a critic of the Bible, with the understanding that Christians are not ignorant. That in order to be a Christian, you don't have to like take off your intellectual hat, hang it at the door, and then come in here and just be moved by the social stream that everybody's swimming through. It's not what's happening here. That you can actually be a thinking, intelligent, well-read person and be a Christian and not be ashamed of that. Secondly, if you're here and you don't know God personally, And maybe you've investigated some of the evidence that we've been describing here over the last few weeks. Maybe your move would be to call out to God and to see if he's real. To call on him to speak and ask him, if you're out there, show yourself to me. To actually have an encounter. Now, if God's real, I believe that he will speak. And it's interesting because... Even though it seems really simple to do something like this, people often have trouble with it. I remember talking to a guy who had been showing up to our home church like every single week for several months. We'd been laying out all of this evidence to him about belief in Christianity and belief in the Bible. And, you know, one night when we were talking, we were like, so, you know, what other other questions do you have? And he was just like, you know, I really don't know. And I said, well you know, maybe the next step for you would be to call out to God. He's like, man, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. I think I'm going to go home tonight and do that. And so the next week I was excited to see him. <clears throat> and after our home church, I said, so, man, I remember last week you were talking about how you were going to go and call out to God and see if he's real, ask him to speak to you. Did you do it? He's like, oh, no, 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 that, that just never happened. But, but I'm going to do it tonight. And so then the next week he showed up I asked him the same thing same response. And finally after a couple a couple more months of talking about things I said, "You know what's holding you back from calling out to God?" He said, "I just don't know." I said, "Let me take a stab at it." I wonder if the reason you're afraid to call out to God is because you're worried that he might actually answer. And that you know that if he answers, there might be some real implications for your life. I mean, it's exciting to think about the idea of having an encounter with the creator of the universe. But we're not dumb enough to think that that's not going to have any implications for our life. And so, I challenge you to have the courage to call out to God. You know, he's a God who loves you who wants the best for you in your life. And he will answer you. Finally, Paul was able to endure opposition because he was convinced of the truth that he spoke about. I think that's an important point to make here. You know, it wasn't that Paul was, you know, this tough dude who just would, you know, take a beating, stand up, and just walk back into a city because he was, he just had this, you know, fortitude about him. But the reason why Paul was able to endure all of this persecution was because he truly believed in what he spoke about. And I think that if you're not at the point where you feel convinced about Christianity, where you feel like you've got a solid foundation to stand on in your faith, then uh, you might end up running away, fleeing the moment opposition, persecution, or suffering enters into your life. You're standing on shaky ground. And so I would urge you to to get your your questions answered and to try to resolve some of your doubts, giving God the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, Lord, um, <clears throat> as I think about all that we talked about here tonight, it reminds me of uh, Francis Schaeffer's title, He is There and He is Not Silent. I actually wish I named my teaching that now. But um, but we thank you that you do exist, that we're not just talking to the air, and that uh, you have spoken, and that you've spoken um, clearly through your Son, Jesus. You say that in the book of Hebrews, that um, you have um, displayed yourself in ways that um, you know, uh, we'll be able to uh, look at uh, for the rest of eternity through what Jesus did and learn more about you. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who um, have never had an encounter with you, but since maybe on an intuitive level or maybe even through our scientific inquiry have, uh, has led us to maybe the possibility that you exist, that at this moment they would turn to you and call out and ask whether or not you're real. And um, we thank you for anyone who did that, and we trust that you will answer. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.